That was for Billy's benefit. I love Alcoholics Anonymous. Um, I want to thank Stan and Richard and the committee for inviting me to be here this weekend with you good folks. I uh, was asked to come last year. Uh, I was unable to attend. I had a sponsee who uh, was in the last stages of Lou Gehrig's disease. And uh, many of us spent a number of time with him at the end. And uh, so I wasn't able to come last year. And I'm, I was able to come this year, and I'm glad to. I scheduled originally to speak tomorrow. Uh, but because I'm just a little bit alcoholic and about a half a bubble out of plum, uh, I scheduled two conventions this weekend, which is my, you know, do it, do it more, do it better. And uh, um, I'm flying out tomorrow morning for uh, Diamond Head, Mississippi, to give a talk tomorrow night. And so uh, the committee was kind enough to let me come today and talk so I could fulfill both commitments uh, and not embarrass myself too badly. And as it would be, the speaker that was supposed to speak today to speak tomorrow hasn't arrived yet because he's having flight trouble. So that's my out. I learned in a retarded class you got to go with what they give you. I don't know if any of you rode the short bus, but I did. And uh, you know, when you're a kid and and you stand there on the corner with a few other boys and girls that aren't wired quite right, and the big bus comes. You know, all the kids get on there and they drive off, and then you wait for the short bus. And uh, you begin to think there might be something wrong. I'm an alcoholic. My problem isn't mental retardation, though my sponsor might take that to task. Uh, what that would imply is that uh, I love to drink, and uh, I really do. I, I love to drink. Uh, Billy talked about it a lot. Uh, I miss it sometimes today. I hope that doesn't sound uh, anti-program. I don't mean it to be. If I could drink normally, Billy did a good job of the doctor's opinion, in my opinion, this morning. He, he did a good job of explaining why he's different from the from the ordinary drinker, and I have that same affliction. Uh, I don't seem to be able to drink socially. I, uh, I don't know. I, I, I like beer a lot. I, uh, I like Budweiser specifically. I'm sorry for those of you who drank something else. That probably got you here quicker. I'm going to tell you how much I love Budweiser. I weep when I see the Clydesdales in a parade. I have compassion for Louis the Lizard. <laughs> and I'll tell you how much I miss Budweiser. If you're ever in Santa Monica, California, and you're going north out to 405 towards the Grapevine, on the west side of the freeway at the Roscoe Boulevard exit, there's an Anheuser-Busch brewery. I swear to God, when I drive by there, I slow down and I have a moment of silence. That's not natural. I also like fine wine. Ripple. There's a ripple table right there. Boone's Farm Strawberry Hill. You know why I like Boone's Farm Strawberry Hill? Because when I puke, it looks like I'm bleeding internally. I tell you I'm dying from stomach cancer, and you buy me a Budweiser. Girls seem to like to give attention to the sick and wounded. And a little Mad Dog 2020 grape. Now let me tell you what that will do to you if you drink it all at the same time. Over an extended period of time, the way I did. It will give you a condition we know as alcoholic terminal diarrhea. 
you know, that's where you go till you're gone. I came into AA with diarrhea. I mean, I had it forever. My sponsor suggested my first spiritual awakening was a solid bowel movement. It was killing me. When you've drank like that and you've had diarrhea for that long, you've got to have good decision-making skills. And you've got to develop split-second timing. And I'm a puker, too. And since I stood up a lot when I should have shut up, I've got false teeth. So it's kind of projectile, if you know what I mean. I mean, I puke so much I could hit that whole table and never touch my own shoes. I'd be at home, and my wife would never come in the bathroom. That was my throne of contempt. Whenever we was having a problem, I'd go into the bathroom, and she would never follow me there. If she ever walked by me and looked in the bathroom and saw me in there, if I was on the floor having a cardiac arrest, she would say, you're going to die. Because she's not coming in there. I'll tell you why. I'd be there bowing before the ivory altar, empty, you know, puking. And all of a sudden, my teeth would fly out right into the stool. And it would be a race between me and the hole at the bottom. I do know a moment of pitiful and incomprehensible demoralization. And just before they go down that hole, I catch them. Just before they go down the shooter, and I grab them. And I think, I won! And then I think, what the hell? I rinse them off and put them right back in. I sure miss drinking. <laughs> now, I didn't start out drinking that way. Uh, I had no intention of turning out that way. I don't know what an alcoholic is. I had no idea what to compare it to, and then I saw one on TV. And I want you to know how it works. It tells me how powerful an old idea is. And it tells me that the result is nil until I become willing to let go of my old ideas absolutely. And my greatest old idea that I have today is what an alcoholic is. I saw one on TV. He was lying in a doorway in an alleyway somewhere between Clark and Randolph Street in Chicago. You could see the soles of his shoes had holes in them. He's wearing mixed mat socks. He had a torn and tattered raincoat with a rope tied about his waist. And he was drinking something out of a brown paper bag. That's an alcoholic. Now I submit to you, I've done a lot of things. But I've never drank nothing out of a brown paper bag. Therefore, not alcoholic. And to this day, 23 years and about 14 days sober, I have not drank nothing out of a brown paper bag. I'm not going to do it today. But yet I know I'm an alcoholic, but that's still the power of an old idea. It could creep up and get me at any time. That's why I need to continue going to meetings on a daily basis, because I've got that constant idea in the back of my mind that someday they're going to invent a pill because they're trying. They're going to invent a pill that will allow me to drink Budweiser socially. They may even try to water it down with a duel. But even Dr. Silkworth don't like that. I remember I called my sponsor when O'Doul's came out. And I said, how about that? He said, no, no, no. I said, but it's only got a little bit. He said, well, that's all. He says, Dr. Silkworth says that the only program he has to, to suggest is entire abstinence. And I said, well, does that mean all? <laughs> and then he goes on to say, in any form at all. I didn't know the importance of that until I became a student of Alcoholics Anonymous and listened to these grateful old-timers who have a lot more experience than I do because I'm not an old-timer. I'm a middle-timer. I'm just by the good grace of God, sober and somewhat in my right mind today, 
At least that I can be here and tell you my story, not somebody else's. I've been known to do that. My, my story at times gets boring. So I listen to a tape and I tell that one. It's really interesting. Because I can always put a spin on it, you know, that they didn't think of. In November 1972, I was sleeping in a dumpster behind Larry's Oasis. I called it my duplex. There was two of them out there. And it was, a rel- it was an unusually cold winter. Uh, I'd been on Skid Row for a while. I was sleeping in that dumpster because I found out if you line it with cardboard, you get down in a little bit of garbage that's been piled in there, it gives off a strange kind of a heat and you don't get frostbite. And I like that. And if you're hungry, what the hell? You know, it's available. And I remember I was in that dumpster right, and I heard a knock on my door. The lid. And I knew it wasn't the garbage pickup man because you got to know what time the schedule is. And he knocked again, and I opened the door to see who was there, and it was my daddy looking down there at me. And you know, I'll never forget the look in my daddy's eye when he peered into that dumpster at his son. And he said to me, Wayne, do you want to come home? No. As a matter of fact, I don't. I like it in here, Dad. Doesn't this look warm and cozy? If there was room, I'd invite you in. If it wasn't for you and Mom, I wouldn't be here anyway. That's not what I said. It's kind of what I thought. What I said was, no thanks, Dad. I'm doing fine. And my dad closed the lid to the dumpster and left. And I got mad at him. My opinion was he should have made me get out of there and go home. And he should have taken care of me. He does not need Al-Anon. He never looked back. And by the grace of God, it was too cold to stay in that dumpster. And I had to leave it, and I began the walk that I'll never forget. I had no idea I was going to AA, and it wouldn't have mattered because I'm not an alcoholic anyway. Because I'm not drinking nothing out of a brown paper bag, don't you see? Now, I want you to picture me as I was. I had long hair down to my butt. No offense to people with long hair. That's just the way it was. I had a full beard covered my face. It was matted with stuff from the dumpsters. And the reason I had the full beard was because I didn't have any teeth, and I was embarrassed and ashamed. And I knew if you made fun of me, I had to attack you, not because I'm a tough guy, but because I can't stand the thought you're judging me. And uh, I clumb out of that dumpster, and I went down to this place called Harvey's Restaurant in Moline, Illinois. It was at the, thir- at the foot of 34th Street and 4th Avenue, Moline, Illinois. And I walked in there about midnight, and there was this little old waitress working. And she gave me a hot cup of water, a bottle of Heinz tomato ketchup, some saltine crackers. I talked to her, told her how terrible my childhood was. You know how we are. And she gave me, she cut me a deal. She told me if I would mop and wax the dining room floor, she'd give me two sausage sandwiches on whole wheat toast. I thought, that's a deal. Now, by the time I got halfway through the floor, I felt severely underpaid. (laughs) And I was getting a resentment. And this went on for a while. Then one night, this little old guy named Harvey, you know, Harvey's Restaurant? Harvey comes in. Harvey's in this thing called A&A. He's heard about me. But A don't matter to me. I'm not an alcoholic. I got problems. But I know I'm not an alcoholic. And Harvey comes in, and he pulls this brass coin out of his pocket. Now, on one side, he's got these two A's, and on this other side, he's got this prayer, God grant me something. Didn't say nothing about money, food, and shelter, so I was disinterested. Then Harvey says, I hear you need some help. And I thought, now we're getting somewhere. And he says, I want you to take this coin down to 416 16th Street tomorrow, noontime. 
It's in the basement. You'll see a light bulb hanging there in the cellar way. It'll be on. If it's on, they're in there. You go in there and tell them Harvey sent you. They're expecting you. He never said where I was going. What I heard him say was I'd get some free food to eat because you guys know I'm hungry. You give me some pocket dough because you know I'm broke. And three or four packs of Pell-Mell tailor-made cigarettes. Because I hadn't had a tailor-made. I've been smoking curb butts, if you know what I mean. So I go down there the next day. I find that address. Now picture this. Don't do this to a newcomer. It'll make them drunk. I got down there and I saw this sign posted on the side, the side of this building. It read, Building Condemned. Do not enter. Right beneath it was another sign with an arrow pointing right into the cellar. said, AA 16th Street. Welcome. I didn't know what to do. I mean, if it's condemned, I can't go in. I mean, I can shoot somebody, but I can't jaywalk. You know what I'm saying? Because it's against the law. I don't understand that thinking. Don't care about the psychology of it. Don't try to help me after the meeting. So I can't make my mind up whether to go down there or not. And then all of a sudden, I noticed a light bulb. He said if it was on to go in. It was flickering. I didn't know what to do. I wasn't good at contingency plans. Harvey said if it was on, go in. I went out of my mind. I couldn't go in. That's like jaywalking. So I went over to Larry's Oasis. And I had a few Budweiser's. And when I get oiled up, I'll take charity from anybody. Even Harold over there. I'd even let a Harold help me. So I go back there. I look down that cellar way and I bring myself up to walk in there with as much pride as I can. And I'm a bull in a china shop. So I straighten myself up and charge through that cellar doorway. I didn't notice that doorway was 5'10-ish. I'm 6'3-ish. I caught that door header right across my eyebrow. The impact knocked me off my feet and I slid into my first meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous. I had no idea where I was. About six feet inside the table, inside the room was this round table with six or seven old men. Oh, and I knew they had to be talking about death and dying because I sized them up quick. It wasn't going to be long. And I slid right between two of them. And this old ugly one gets up out of his chair and goes just like this. And then he said, slide right in here, dummy. We got a wrench to fit every nut that comes in the door. I didn't like him right away. His name was Barney. And I thought I heard him call me dummy, so I'm reaching down into my boot to pull that 357 out. And then he says to me, dummy? At least that's how I heard it. I looked up at him and I said, my name's Wayne. He says, I got it. Dummy? I'm going to be your sponsor. That saved his life. (laughs) Now you might wonder why. Since I've never been to AA before. But I have played baseball. I've bowled in the league. Sponsors pay for everything. You hear me? So I got up off the floor and promptly stuck my head right up Barney's butt, basically. I followed that poor man everywhere he went. They say he should have put turd signals on his hips to keep from breaking my neck should I turn left or right. Because I wouldn't have time. 
And for the next five years, I went to meetings. I drank before meetings. I drank after meetings. And when I could no longer stand your hugs and your smiles and your groveling, pathetic stories of happiness, I drank during meetings. When I could get away with it. If you ever find a gathering like this, where a drinking drunk is not allowed to sit in and listen, in my opinion, it's no longer AA. It's a gathering of people who forgot from whence they came. However, newcomer, if you're here and you're drinking, we do want you to behave. <laughs> Therein lies my problem. You see, I can either drink or I can behave. I just can't do it simultaneously. <laughs> I remember I was going to meetings for about four years drinking. And I walked into my home group. I'd been down at Larry's Oasis having a few Budweiser's. And see if you can track with this for a minute. You told me that when you helped me, it helped you, and that made me feel good. You're, you follow? So I'm down at Larry's Oasis, and I'm not feeling good. So I decided to go to the AA meeting so you could help me to make you feel good, because that would make me feel good. So I went to the meeting, got there late, disrupted the meeting, walked in spiritual, wanting you to help me. You weren't inclined to that at all. You were disheartened, I think, that I came in late even though I made my appearance known. One of the old-timers gets up out of his chair and he says, you got to quiet down, you're disrupting the meeting. Something happened to that spirituality. I didn't like him right away. Next one got up and I said to him, I don't want to. Another guy gets up out of his chair and he says, you got to sit down, you're disturbing the meeting. I looked at him and I said, I don't have to. Another one got up out of his chair and says, you got to leave. We have a right to an undisturbed, undistracted message of Alcoholics Anonymous, not only for the newcomer, but for those of us interested. Now, we don't kick anybody out of AA, no matter how deviant they may be. You're welcome to come back tomorrow, but you have to leave now. And I said, you can't make me. Oh, yes, they can. <laughs> well, if you could see that old boy sitting right over there at that table with that plaid shirt on and that long hair looking like he could get me in a second. About four guys his size, each one grabbed arm and leg. Talked some newcomer into holding the door open. I noticed as I flew by. <laughs> and just before I landed out in the middle of 16th Street, I heard him yell out, Keep coming back! <laughs> There's a lot of love in AA. And I did. Four and a half years drinking, going to meetings, I walked into my home group, and I heard my sponsor yell out, Hey, dummy! I said, what? He said, do you know this program tends to work better if you don't drink? I didn't know that. I've been going to meetings for four and a half years. I could pass a polygraph test on this. I never heard anybody talk about not drinking for four and a half years. I heard it that day. And it done something to me that never happened to me before. And I couldn't take it. All I could do is reach down and pull that 357 out, and I wheeled it around, and I fired a round off at my sponsor's face. I missed my sponsor six inches high. They say if Barney would have been six foot tall, he'd be six foot under. I came to the next morning in six-point leather restraints tied to a steel bed in the center of a padded room at Franciscan Mental Health Center in Rock Island, Illinois. I was black and blue from head to toe from a little AA group therapy. <laughs> Good therapy. 
Now I'm laying in there and I got all kinds of time to think. Guess what? I got a visitor that next morning. You know who it was? Barney. I couldn't get, he's like a maggot on a mission. I could not get rid of that man. So I'm laying there. I mean, I'm tore up. I got broke ribs. I'm black and blue. I'm strapped down face up. My sponsor comes into isolation. I'm in a padded room. He's got a nurse following because they've taken away my teeth, but they're afraid I might bite through the straps anyway and get him. So he comes walking around, and he thinks he looks at certain parts of my body and goes like this. And then he said, dummy. That's what I heard. He said that if they let you out of here, there's something wrong with you. I don't even know if you're an alcoholic. You might just be nuts. And I'm laying there thinking, sure, you talk to me like that while I'm tied down, pal, but I know where you live. And they got to let me out of here someday. And it's like he had ESPN. The next thing out of his mouth was... You know, if they let you out of here, and I'm not sure they're going to, they're talking about you, keeping you and studying you a while. He said, but it's my opinion, when they let you out of here, if they do, if you come with us and do what we did and still do, you can recover too. Do you know that man is from that day to this day not made me relive that experience? That's called mercy. That's the love of one alcoholic for another, because he knows, had he made me face that, that moment, I could not have come back to you. Instead, he gave me a free pass. He went to the board of psychiatry and got me released to him. Now therein lies the second step. He was crazier than me. I remember asking him one time, I said, Barney, aren't you afraid of me? He says, no, I'm not afraid of you, pal. He said, it's in the book. Have you heard about that book? That book made me mad. It's in the book. What's in the book? That, that's in the book. It's in the What book? He said, it's in the book. Okay, what's in the book? He said, that. We do not need to fear to go to the most sordid spot on earth to carry this message. For God will keep us unharmed. And you, bucko, are the most sordid spot I've ever been. <laughs> but Barney, I'm a child of God. Not yet. He said, that's in the book too. Where's that in the book? In the book. He said, an, an alcoholic in his cups is an unlovely creature. God, I hated his guts. I hated him. I just can't tell you how I would rile up and just... Mm. I just wanted to commit pet therapy on Barney. I just... I drank. And six months later, it's November 1977. As a matter of fact, it's the morning of November 8th, 1977. And a series of circumstances and events was about to unfold that I believe happens for each and every one of us in our own way in alcoholic Anonymous. Do you know why we have people that are impossible? I was called impossible. He's impossible. Do you know why we have impossible people here? To help impossible people. Do you hear me? And trust me, I sponsor only impossible people. The morning, morning of November 8, 1977, it's cold in Illinois. I'm in a Rock Island rescue mission. I have no idea what's about to happen. At 4.30 in the morning, I get kicked out because I get caught rifling pillowcases. I didn't notice there were heads resting upon them. And I'm a snowbird, 
You know what a snowbird is? When it gets cold outside, you want help? I'm a snowbird. And it was cold. And I wanted to go to the noon meeting of the Moline group. And I had about 65 blocks to walk, though I didn't know that at the time. I just set out for the noon meeting. Because when you go to a meeting, you go to a meeting. And on the way, I stole a six-pack of warm Budweiser. It was cold by the time I got there. And I remember sitting down. Picture this. I remember sitting down on the front steps of the Moline group, waiting for the noon meeting. And guess who shows up early for the meeting? Barney. He always came early. I figured just to provoke me. So I'm sitting there. I've drank three cans of beer. I've got three left. Barney, who's one of them grateful old-timers, he walks up, he looks me right in the eye, doesn't even look at the beer. And he says, why don't you come in and help me set up for the meeting? And I wanted his approval. I didn't know that. And I said, okay. Now, he didn't look at the beer, but I did. And I said, Barney, I'll be in in a minute. And then I don't know what come over me, folks. But for some reason, I hid those other three cans of beer in the bush in case I might need it during the meeting. Because you know how you guys are when you share. You're so filled with love and success. I don't even have any teeth. And uh, so I go in and I help Barney set up for the meeting. And that's when the magic and the miracle of Alcoholics Anonymous happened in my life, though I didn't know it for a long time, folks. We know a lot about 2020 hindsight here in Alcoholics Anonymous. But I'm sitting in there waiting for the noon meeting to start. Me and Barney are basically done talking. And about quarter to twelve. Now bear in mind, I've only had three cans of beer that morning. And I've been around AA five years. That means to me I'm not really a newcomer. <laughs> Do you know what I'm saying? At quarter to twelve, in walked a guy that I knew was new. He'd never been to AA before, I could tell. And he was drunk. So I went up to him and introduced myself to him. I said, hi, I'm Wayne, I'm an alcoholic, and I'm going to be your sponsor. He couldn't smell my breath. And he said, okay. Barney could have destroyed me. He could have come over and said, you can't sponsor him, you idiot. You know what he whispered in my ear? Do you mind if I co-sponsor him? And I looked at Barney and I wanted to say, no, he's mine. No. Because you'll get all the credit when he gets a year. Because I've already figured out how this works. But I surrendered. And I said, okay. And do you know that uh, he still calls me sponsor today? And do you know that him and I are both still sober today? We had the same sobriety date, although I've got three more hours than him. <laughs> I never let him forget it. And we sat down on a course of saving lives. Watch out. You see, Barney said, grab a newcomer and work with him. Watch what you tell a newcomer. I'm literal. He said, grab him. So I'm two weeks sober. I'm sitting in my home group, and I'm not even sure what an alcoholic looks like. You can't tell one if you can't smell one. So Jimmy's over there, and I'm going to beat him to the punch because I want to work with him. Jimmy can drink for all I care now. I want to help somebody. I wish I was more virtuous than that. But I'm sitting there, and I'm watching the door, and all of a sudden, in walks a newcomer. I could tell because he had that deer-in-the-headlight look. So I charged him, and I had my hand out just like you did, but something happened to me on the way to the door. And I went from the guy's hand to his throat in a split second. And I literally grabbed him by the throat, and I pinned him up against the wall. 
And I said, listen, asshole. If you want what I got, you got to do what I did. I had two weeks over. This is what he said. You ain't got nothing I want. So I turned him loose. I said, that's okay. I'll be here when you come back. He had 11 years. He was having a bad day. So I went running over to my sponsor. I said, Barney! Because I was brave over there. Over here, Barney! He said, you don't want nothing I got. Barney says, really? We only hope you don't want what you got. But he says, you know, you hang in there. You're bound to find one too sick to see you coming. And I've been looking for you ever since. And I was on a mission. And then a series of circumstances and events took place that I want to share with you. It was November. It was Thanksgiving. And I was desperate. Thank God I didn't really know how desperate I was. I might have had to made the supreme sacrifice. That little bit of time in Alcoholics Anonymous, you removed enough of that desperation that I could live one more day, even drinking. Being here with you, enabled me to stay alive day by day by day, though I didn't know that. That's why it doesn't bother me at all when I'm drinking drugs in this room. That's why we're here. And uh, Thanksgiving weekend, my father had been sober four years. And uh, I knew he was sober. He wasn't drinking. My family had a restraining order against me. I couldn't go near any of them. I wanted to, but what was I going to do when I got there anyway? My dad got wind I was sober. My dad got wind I was sober three weeks. He got word to me I was welcome to come home for Thanksgiving dinner. I called my sponsor. I said, what do I do? He says, go. What do I do when I get there? Eat. Okay. Now, Barney's family is all coming in from the East Coast. Now, he always said, if you're going to drink, call me. He says, I give you my word, I will never try to talk you out of drinking. That's none of my business. That's your business. But I want you to call me first. I said, why? He says, because I want to see stupid in action. So I go to my mom and dad's house for Thanksgiving. I'm sober a little over three weeks. My dad's sober four years. And my dad is so happy with my presence that we celebrate and Miller Lite came out with Miller came out with a new beer called Miller Lite. And my dad said, Will you have a Miller with me? And I said, Sure. I'm not going to tell my dad no. And none of you would blame me for it. Under the circumstances. So my dad and I went to the store, got some Miller Lite, brought it home. And then just before I drank my can, I heard this voice go off. Call me. <laughs> so I set it down and I said, Dad, I gotta call somebody. I called Barney at home during Thanksgiving dinner. I said, Barney, I'm going to drink. He said something and then hung up before I could respond, which meant I had to wait. So I waited till, my, till Barney showed up at my mom and dad's house. He came right over, barged into my mom's house like he owned the place, because that's the way he is. Walks over and greets my dad, and then he looks at me, doesn't even look at the beer, and he said, let's go for a ride. And I was sure we were going to talk about me. I was sure he was going to tell me the evils of drinking. Right? Not at all. All he did was talk about himself. For an hour. 
Didn't even ask how I was doing. Didn't even tell me how much alcohol was in Miller Lite. He said how much he loves AA. Said how much AA has done for him. Said how happy he is that AA brought me into his life. And then he dropped me off at my dad's house and said, look, we're going to that convention tomorrow. If you're still sober, I'll pick you up at 9 o'clock. And then he left. I didn't drink. My dad died a year and a half later from chronic untreated alcoholism. And then that next morning, I'm going to this thing called an AA convention. If you're new in this room and this is your first convention, you have no idea how glad I am you're here. You will in a minute. Three and a half minutes sober. My sponsor's taking me to this A&A convention in Rock Island, Illinois. He said, there's some people from California giving up their Thanksgiving weekend to come talk to you. And he says, and frankly, you need to clean up. Now, he didn't tell me I smelled, but I did. He took me home in his bathtub. I took a bath. Then he took me to his favorite department store that was open the day after Thanksgiving, Salvation Army. He says, we're going to buy you some go-to-convention clothes. I want you to picture this. This is November 1977. We go to the suit rack, and the only suit they got on board that will fit me is this lime green double-knit polyester. It had lining. For those of you who can see that yellow strip of tape, it had lining as bright yellow as that. And it had green tennis rackets. So we bought it. Then we went to the shirt department and I said, Barney, I'm picking out the shirt. So I bought this shirt. It was cool. I thought it was silk. It was brushed polyester. Didn't have no buttons from here to here. It was a disco shirt or something like that. But it had animals around it. I thought it was cool. It looked good with a tie. Then we went to the underwear and I said, no. I balked. Then we went to the shoe department at the Salvation Army. The only gunboats they had in supply were these 13 and a half inch. You remember those, any disco people in here? Remember the disco? The only shoes they had on board that would fit my feet were these black and brown box toe Oxford disco shoes with the two and a half inch platform sole and the four inch heel. So we bought them. We got out of there for a buck 85. He takes me to the Sheridan Inn in Rock Island for this AA convention, stood me at the front door, and made me a greeter. <laughs> I want to tell you who the speakers were at my first AA convention. A guy by the name of Norm Elpy. Chuck C. He had Elsa with him. And by the way, that was the weekend he reunited with his son Richard, who flew from London for that convention to meet with his dad. A guy by the name of Clancy I, a guy by the name of Johnny H, a guy by the name of Dottie Shore from North Hollywood, and a guy by the name of Tom B. Jr. from Charlotte, North Carolina. I'm going to tell you, they spun me. All I know is every time they would approach the door, they would greet my sponsor. Nothing out of the ordinary would take place. And then they couldn't even look at me before they burst out laughing. Chuck walked up by me, he, and this is how he laughed. He had something stuck in his throat. 
And he whisked Elsa around me so I couldn't get after her. Norm came by me and said something so fast I couldn't figure it out for the laughter. Johnny bent me over and frisked me. I heard he was from California. I have no idea what Clancy said to me. Dottie Shore kissed me on the head, laughingly. And finally, when Tom laughed, I couldn't take it no more. I turned around and said, Barney, are they laughing at me? Yeah. Yeah, they are. You are a sight to behold. He says, you know what, dummy? If you ever learn to laugh at yourself, you'll never be left unamused. Now, you might wonder what I mean by that's what I heard. Billy touched on it this morning, and Clancy's going to talk about it a lot more tomorrow, is the disease of perception. Now, it's not my job to tell you Clancy's story. He'll do just fine. But I can only give you my take on that perception thing as I understand it. And here's how it goes. Shortly after that, my sponsor had me at a meeting in Chicago, Illinois. Some police were looking for me in Moline. Hadn't cleared up the wreckage of my present yet. And there was this room with about 300 people fit in about this square of an area in this fire station at the Mustard Seed in Chicago, Illinois. They was having an anniversary party, right? I've been around AA now long enough to know what's going on. I've only been sober a few weeks, but I've been around five years. In my opinion, I knew something. My sponsor was in the front row with all the other old-timers. They put us losers in the second row. That was my opinion. So they wouldn't have to look at the disease. And there was some guy up here. I knew he was sent out from New York because you got them all in a little cubbyhole in New York. And the speakers all come out of there. That's what I knew. And so this guy's speaking, and I'm sitting next to my best friend, Jim. I've known him three minutes. And I found it necessary to critique the speaker. Just like some of you. Don't lie to me. I already saw you. So as he's talking, I'm sitting there telling Jimmy how full of crap he is. Because I know, you know. I just do. I don't know why. As he's talking, I nudge Jimmy, and I'm louder then than I am now. The whole room is hearing me, and this guy's trying to talk around me. And as he's talking, I'm talking. I said, Jimmy, that guy's a liar. How could New York let him come out here and talk to us? If he'd have drank like that, his guts would fall out. And then he talked on, and he said something that made me. I said, oh, Jimmy, he couldn't have done that. They'd have put him in prison a long time ago. He's such a liar. And then he said something, and I said, oh, Jimmy, he's a liar. If he'd have done that, he'd be locked up in a psych ward. I know I've been there 17 times. And as a matter of fact, I have. I've been institutionalized 17 times, and frankly, I like it there. I'm a self-sign-in. I signed myself in 15 times. I'll tell you why I like it there in case you slip. It gets lonely out there. And if you drank the way I drank and act the way I acted, I could not get a date out there to save my life. But you put me in a psych ward, and I got a 50-50 shot. Now I'm going to tell you, I'm going to tell you how to do it. We're here to be of service. <laughs> how many of you have had Thorazine? I've had enough Thorazine and I'll be slowed down until I'm 210. Thorazine is a very interesting drug. It doesn't do a thing to slow down the speed of my thinking, but my butt will never catch it. 
Well, I know if it does that to me, it does it to those girls on the ward, too. And they brought the med cart right out onto the floor, and we line up like little ducks. And they give us our little paper cup full of pills. And we all obediently take them. And I knew which ones were taking Thorazine. So I'd wait, then I'd time it. Because I knew I was going to get a date in about an hour. Because given the givens, I knew she could not run me. This ain't a hotbed of mental health, folks. So I says to Jimmy, he's a liar. He couldn't have done that. He'd be locked up in a psych ward for the rest of his life. I know I've been there 17 times. And I guess my sponsor couldn't take another word of that. He turned around, looked me in the eye in front of 300 people. Here's what I heard him say. Shut up, you goddamn loser. You ain't got a thing to say we want to hear. And if we ever think you do, we'll come out to that car we pulled you out of behind Harvey's restaurant. We'll toot your little horn and invite you in to share. Now, until you hear that horn, sit there, keep your big, fat mouth shut or leave. That's what I heard him say. You know what he really said? <laughs> Clancy gave a talk, and he talked about being thrown out of the midnight mission. And in, in the middle of thin air, he realized that article in that magazine wasn't doing him any good. And then he talked about being locked up in the Texas State Insane Asylum. And he talked about the death of a loved one. And I never heard anybody that I identified with every time he opened his mouth. And, you know, from that day to this day, I haven't always been well, but I've been satisfied to be here with you people. I finally fit. You know, I've spent my whole life trying to fit in. I've never felt like I belong anywhere, like I'm never a part of. I don't know what's wrong with me. My theme song is what is wrong with me. And if you try to tell me, we got a problem. What is this alcoholism thing? I don't know. I don't know what's wrong with me. My sponsor cut me a deal. He said to give him a year. Give him the first year. Try not to get distracted with outside issues. Focus on Alcoholics Anonymous for the first year because you're building a foundation for the rest of your sober life. And that foundation, God is going to put a house. If you do it right and maintain it right, it'll become a mansion. You're going to need a mansion because you're going to amass so many loved ones in Alcoholics Anonymous, you're going to need a place to rest them. And he said, but the day is going to come when the fiercest emotional storm you can imagine is going to hit and shape the very foundation you live on. And if you're not maintaining that foundation, it will fall and you will drink. And because he talked from his experience, I believed it, and for the next year... I did everything my sponsor directed me to do, every time. I greeted people I didn't even like. I mopped and waxed floors. I washed, I washed china coffee cups. I, I passed a basket and tried not to steal it. I did everything I was asked to do for a year. And then at my home group in Illinois, they do a little presentation where the sponsor comes up and says nice things about you. They make it up, but they say it anyway. And then they sit down. They give you this little chip. And then I'm supposed to come up and thank my sponsor, say something maybe about God if I got one yet, thank you, the home group who helped keep me sober, and then that's the maximum of what I know, sit down and shut up. Now Barney came up and said some really nice things about me. I knew it wasn't true, but I liked it. And then he sat down, and then something happened to me on the way to the podium. As I ascended, on the way up, I knew I was a miracle because some of you told me I was. I was a miracle. By the time I got to the podium, I realized I was the miracle. And 
Then I looked at my sponsor. And above him on the wall was the picture of Bill and Bob. And I saw mine floating up between them. And I looked at my pathetic sponsor. Because by now I know he's pathetic. He's over 900 years. I just turned one. And I realized how lonely he really is. And what a terrible program he does work. And if he'd only do my program. Because I'm walking hand, I've outgrown my sponsor. You ever done that? Now that was my opinion. So I fired my sponsor. And I got me a new one. So from my second to my seventh year, I sponsored myself. Did steps 1, 12, and 13. By the way, ladies, if you're here this afternoon and you're in your first year, and I come up to you after the meeting or perhaps at the dance, maybe I'll even posture a little bit. Now we are. Maybe I'll say something like this. Hey, would you like to go have coffee and talk about God? If I do that, run! <laughs> so seven years dry working a program like that, I weigh 146 pounds. I know you can't possibly believe that because I can't even conceive it in my own mind had I not lived the experience myself. I've lost my teeth. I know not where. I am now more depressed than I've ever been in my entire life, and I am convinced of one fact. I am convinced Alcoholics Anonymous does not work. After all, I'm more depressed now than I've ever been, and I'm doing everything I see you doing. And I can't call my sponsor because I've been lying on him. I can't call you because it's you to whom I've been lying on him. I'm standing alone in the only boat there is. And I call the only person I can. I call my psychiatrist. Now, what I'm about to share is not an opinion. Don't leave here today and say, boy, that guy gave an opinion. This is my personal experience. I went, I called my doctor and said, AA doesn't work. Uh, I'm either going to kill myself or somebody else. What do I do? And I went in. He drew my blood, did some tests, told me I needed lithium. I had a chemical imbalance in my brain. Diagnosed me manic depressive, bipolar. Asked me if I'd uh, take a drug called amitriptyline. And then asked me if I would volunteer in an experiment on a new drug they were testing that came out in 1988 called Prozac. And I said, absolutely, I need help. So he wrote me out the prescription. It's the first hope I felt in years. You hear me? But on the way to the pharmacy, a voice went off in my head. Call me! You know how they get into your head? So I picked up my prescriptions, and I called Barney. I said, Barney, I think I better come talk to you. Can I come out to the house? He says, no. I'll meet you at the maid right. Found out he wanted witnesses. So I meet him at the maid right, and he sits at the center table where all the old-timers sit so everybody else can have an audience. That's my opinion. And I walk in there, and I'm desperate. If you can only imagine, seven years sober, 146 pounds. I've lost my teeth. I'm unkept again. I feel worse now than the day I slid into Alcoholics Anonymous. I set my bag of pills down. I looked my sponsor in the eye, and I said, Barney, I'm bipolar. He didn't even break a breath. He says, I know it. I know you're bipolar. 
We've known for a long time you're bipolar. He says, you know what? One of these days you're going to be walking down 16th Street and you're going to hear the loudest explosion you've ever heard. It's going to be your head popping right out of your ass. And you won't be bipolar no more. <laughs> Barney says, I'm not no doctor. But I do know this. I am a good active member of Alcoholics Anonymous, and I know for a fact you have not incorporated the AA way of life as a way of life. You should not only be depressed, you should be more spiritually depressed now than ever because you haven't treated your alcoholism. He says, I suggest you put that on the shelf for right now, and you try the AA way of life. Two years. Now, see, they get greedy. <laughs> Two years. You do everything we suggest that you do, and this time you might want to work all 12 steps. If you're not better, I'll go to the doctor with you, said my sponsor. I put the pills away because he never told me what to do, never gave me an opinion. He suggested, and I knew I could have him in two years. And I did everything my sponsor. He sent me out to California. I spent six months with Clancy in the Pacific group. I found a group of people that I fit with like a hand in a glove. I went back to Illinois six months later. I worked the 12 steps exactly the way they're outlined in the big book without no help from my thinking at all. Used the 12 and 12 to understand the symptoms of my emotional nature for my type of an alcoholic. And do you know what? By nine years sober, I didn't know it. My depression was gone. You told me it was gone. I didn't even know. I weighed 242 pounds. I didn't grow new teeth. But I bought them. And that's why we tell newcomers they're doing better, because we know you don't know. I didn't know I was better. There was a smile on my face. There was a little bit of jump in my step. Life was getting good, and I didn't even know it. Thank God I was too busy to know. I had a dream. I want to tell you about that. I'm nine years sober. I've got a secret. Now, many people's secrets of a negative variety, a dangerous variety, or a hurtful variety. My secret was that I knew my dream could never come true. And I wasn't going to tell anybody. I had a dream, and my sponsor said, you've got to try. He knew what my dream was. He knew I couldn't do it. But he said, you've got to try, because we don't know if it's God's will or yours. We don't know if it's an obsession or not. So you've got to try, and if it doesn't work, it's probably an obsession. Let it go and move towards something God wants you to have. I want to be a cop. Now, that's no big deal, unless you've been arrested nine times for domestic violence twice for attempted murder, and you have 17 psychiatric institutionalizations. It's hard to be a cop. Unless you're in Iowa. Now let me tell you how I, my sponsor helped me get my record expunged. I had to take some psychiatric tests because I told the truth. I said I was a bit bent. And I went in and applied for the Sheriff's Department, their reserve program, was taking applications for reserve officers at the time. And I went that direction. I knew I didn't have a chance. I knew there was no hope, but I took the test anyway. I passed. I met with two psychiatrists. I, they called me rigid, alcoholic, but I passed. Rigid's good when you're a cop. I went to the academy after I passed the physical agility test because you see, you guys told me to get healthy, do the best I can to be healthy, and I started running races. Billy talked about a marathon. I ran marathons. I was in good shape when I took that test. And then I went into the academy. Can you believe that? I went in the academy with 16 men and women, and I graduated fourth in my class. 
I called my sponsor. I know there's some of you in here that don't impress you a bit. <laughs> I called my sponsor, Barney. I said, I made it, Barney. I'm going to graduate. And I heard Barney say, I'm proud of you. I love you. And I said, will you come to my graduation? He said, absolutely. I'll even bring the group. Then I said, Barney, they gave me my gun. I heard him say, oh, shit. And they did show up for my graduation. Now I want you to know, when I got sober and stayed sober a little while, there was 15 members in my home group. There was 14 men and toothless Sally. Now me and Sally, neither one had no teeth, so when we kissed, it was a, a vacuum. There was Sally in the front row at my graduation with her new teeth. And she was sober as long as I was. And there was all these good-looking citizenry out here for the other 15 graduates. And then there was Wayne's World. There was 45 of the most deviant, twisted, sick human beings God could put on earth in AA. I swear half of them had outstanding warrants. And I'm up there swearing to uphold the law. Now, I want you to know something. They assigned me to drunk driving. I caught a lot of you. And I want you to know something. I 12-stepped you all the way to jail. I had one guy said, will you shut up and lock me up? He had no idea when I said, I'll save you a chair. Do you know I sponsored a number of men that I arrested? And we deviated them into AA. And you know, maybe that's why God put me there, so I could make right some of my past. God works in mysterious ways. Another situation I want to tell you about. Sometimes we think God works in different ways we don't understand, and he does indeed. I just had an experience. Some of you know my baby, Mike Finch. Michael Patrick Finch. Spoke here a few years ago. Died last November after five years with Lou Gehrig's disease. Um, he's my hero. I have a number of heroes in AA. They don't need to know it. But Michael became my hero because I watched how he lived in the face of certain death. I don't know if I could have done it. I don't know if I'm strong enough. I don't know if I have the faith. But I watched Michael do it. Sponsorship is so important. My sponsor influenced me to sponsor other alcoholics. He said my very life depends upon it. I've changed because I've worked with other alcoholics, because each alcoholic I've worked with has shown me a different view of myself that I need to ask God to take care of. And you know what? That's worked for me. I still sponsor a lot of alcoholics because I'm sicker than most. I'm not trying to out-sick nobody. I just know who I'm looking at in the mirror. In that book, it says, my, my sponsor used to follow me around. In the dead of winter, he'd say, hey, summertime. <laughs> say, why, why are you calling me that? Hey, summertime, give me a cup of coffee. Finally, I said, Barney, why do you keep calling me summertime? It's freezing out there. He said, it's easy. Summer, sicker than others. <laughs> and uh, I sponsored Michael for a long time. And I have to tell you today that he sponsored me. He taught me how to live with dignity. 
You know, when I started sponsoring Michael, he only sponsored one other person. He wouldn't do it. He was scared to. Now, I remember the day he got diagnosed with ALS at the age of 29. He had no idea what to expect. I was there when the doctor told him he's going to die. Get your affairs in order. The doctor says, Mike, there is no hope. You are going to die. And I thought, oh, my God, what's he going to do? He stayed sober one day. He says, well, I guess I got a choice. Now, hear this. He says, I guess I got a choice. I suppose I could die a thousand deaths, or I could live one day at a time and die once. And for the next five years, he sponsored as many alcoholics as he could. And isn't it interesting that at the end of his life, when he needed them the most, it was his sponsees and his friends here in Las Vegas and San Diego that took care of him. Isn't that something? But I want to tell you another step in that story about keeping commitments. You know, this is a commitment. I'm going to come here today and I'm going to fly to Mississippi tomorrow morning at 6.30 to keep a commitment. You taught me to keep my commitments not for you, but because it would benefit me. I have personal experience why it's so important. It's like dressing up. Some people think it's silly. Let me tell you something. My sponsor sold me on this a long time ago. He says, you know what? I'd like you to stop using the F word. And I said, why? He said, because it's a distraction. And this is a program of attraction. He said, every newcomer that comes in the door already has that. Give them something they don't have. God, he tricked me. And he said, and why don't you, why don't you keep wearing that suit? I said, Barney, people are making fun of me. He said, yeah, I know. Keep wearing the suit. He said, because the other way, it isn't that you're bad. It's that you're a distraction to the newcomer. Being a, he said, it don't take much to change. You know, you got to do is be willing. He said, this is a program. You are in an autonomous group unto yourself. I didn't get that for a long time. And then he told me to be an example of what God presents in Alcoholics Anonymous. And I had no idea what all that meant, but I was willing to do it. I was willing to drop the F word. I was willing to clean myself up. I was willing not to talk in a vulgar, vainglorious way. Not because I'm a man of virtue but because I want to be a program of attraction. I want the newcomer to have the best shot at seeing what AA can do for a person like me without the added distraction of my self-will. He said, you're going to have to conform. He said, not for me, not because I think it's good. He says, I want you to be willing to conform for the better good of AA. He said, it's the greater good of AA that you'll do it. And he sold me again because he knew I loved AA. And so I dress up. I try to avoid vulgar, vain language, not because I'm religious, but because I truly hope you newcomers will see the program of attraction in me. Because I don't want to be the way I was 23 years and 14 days ago, hopeless and helpless and on the street. You guys cleaned me up. You gave me an opportunity to be reborn. You gave me an opportunity to fulfill a dream I didn't think was possible. And to even move a step further, I want to share that with you. A couple of years ago, I was asked to speak at a meeting at St. John's Hospital in Santa Monica. I know the meeting. It's Saturday night. You know, it's like I have a lot of Saturday nights free, if you know what I mean. He asked me if I'd come speak about six or eight months ahead of time, and I said, oh, sure, because you know how we are. If it makes me look good, I'll say yes today. I knew there was going to be 14 people there, 10 with wristbands from the psych ward. So I said, okay, I'll go. The day approaches, and guess what's happening? It's Friday and Oscar De La Hoya is fighting here in Las Vegas. My friend Mark 
who spoke here last year was sitting ringside, called me up, said, why don't you fly out here tomorrow? I'll get a plane for you. I got seats for us ringside. You'll be by the bell. I said, quote, I'm there. You hear me? Now, Clancy happened to be out of town. Couldn't call him. Didn't know what to do. So I called one of my babies. I said, cover my talk for me Saturday night. I'm going to a fight. And then I called the secretary of the meeting. And I said, do you mind if I send my baby to cover my talk tonight and I'll reschedule so that I can go watch Oscar De La Hoya fight? There's no way he's going to say, keep your commitment, bozo. He said, okay. So Saturday, I, I go to get on the plane. I want to be here Saturday night for that fight. I get one foot on the lower rung of that ladder, and it occurs to me I'm going to have to call Clancy. Now, I know he's going to tell me to call Don King when I need help. So I get back off the plane. I call my baby, tell him to stay home. I'll take care of my own talk. I went to St. John's Hospital, and there was 14 people there, 10 with wristbands. I said, I'm Wayne, I'm an alcoholic, and I don't want to be here because of you. I'm missing a fight tonight, but I'm grateful. <laughs> then I got over myself. I made amends to the group, and then I got on with the business I was there for. And after the meeting, an interesting thing happened. I don't mean this for brag. I don't want you to take it the wrong way. But this guy comes up to me in the line, and he says, are you an actor? I said, no. You ever acted? No. Do you want to? Well, maybe. He said, I'm David so-and-so. I knew the name right away, and I knew I looked for the wristband. And I said, oh, hi, David, I'm the Pope. You know what I'm saying? I'm the Pope. And he said, no, 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 I'm really David. Blah, blah, blah. I said, yeah, and I'm really the Pope. Because I'm thinking he's getting ready to go back up on the unit. I think he's yanking my chain. So he says, no, really. Be at Fox Studio Monday morning at 10 o'clock. Have a gate pass for you. Come back, watch, go and find me. I said, me and the Cardinals will all be there. <laughs> I mean, that's how I'm talking to the guy. And he leaves. So I called my sponsor. What do I do? Go. I said, now I look stupid out there. Go. So I go, and there's a gate pass. And this guy is who he says he is. Now, see, I think it's about me. So he hires me to do this TV show he's writing, sends me to acting class, pays for all my classes. He's going to turn me into an actor. And I'm on the set one day, and guess who wants to come on the set? Michael Patrick Finch. He's in a wheelchair now. He's broke, desperate. The people in Las Vegas have been taking really good care of me financially, but they're tapped. And so I'd bring Michael onto the set, and this one little short, fat, bald-headed guy came over and fell in love with Mike, took him onto the show, took us over and bought us lunch. And then afterwards, David and I got together, and he said, what's he need? And I just said, you know, he don't need nothing. He's doing fine, but he's broke. Now, I want to tell you what this guy did. He gave Mike a check for $1,000 a week till the day he died and paid for around-the-clock caregivers. And then, because Mike could no longer fly, he knew Mike loved me, and he knew Mike wanted to be at whatever convention I was speaking at. So from that day on, this man paid Mike's expenses. 
to be driven to every convention I spoke at in the country, including Vancouver. And then Mike passed last November. And to this day, David's not said a word. He was just grateful to do it. That's what happens here in AA. I thought it was about me. It wasn't about me at all. It was about Mike being taken care of for the last 18 months of his life. So sometimes when we think it's about us, it's really not. But we do it anyway because it's right in front of us. My life is good. And the last thing I want to share with you is, is I, uh, well, I fell in love. I didn't know I could. Do you know at the age of 18, I was diagnosed a psychopath by a panel of psychiatrists. They said I would never know the emotion of love. And I believed them. And then a few years ago, I fell in love, got engaged. The save-the-date cards weren't even dry yet when she gave me my ring back and went back to her boyfriend. No, there's no harm in that. Don't take that the wrong way. But I've never been in love. I didn't know what to feel. I went down to the floor in the fetal position. I called Clancy up. I said, what am I going to do, Clancy? I can't even breathe. I don't know if I can even get up off the floor. Clancy says, now you know the tragedy of Alcoholics Anonymous. I said, what's that? He said, we don't have a step to work that'll mend a broken heart. I hope you have a lot of commitments to keep you busy till it passes. And you know what? I wish it was my line. That's pretty good. Do you know it worked? I knew he told me the truth. And so I got up and I had a ton of commitments to keep and I kept them. And some days the only reason I got out of bed was to keep that commitment. And you know what? It passed. I fell in love again and again. I mean, I'm, I'm a baseball player. I'm going to the plate. It appears I've recently hit a home run. We'll leave it at that. I love AA. I hope I've expressed that this afternoon. And i tell you how, I, how you'll know I love AA. I honor you. I avoid that foul language. I mean, I cuss a little bit, but I don't say the F word from the podium. Because this is a spiritual way of life. I do have a disease, but it's spiritual. It's a spiritual disease. And it requires a spiritual course of action for me to stay sober one day at a time. And I absolutely believe that. And you allow me to fellowship with you in a manner that allows me to be recovered from a terminal, progressive, most often incurable, fatal spiritual disease that mankind out there has no solution for. But when we come in here, one alcoholic meets with another alcoholic, and we begin to share from the heart, not the head, identification takes place. And I think, you know what? I can do this one more day. And by, in fact, that's what's happened to me. I've been able to do this one more day, one day at a time. And I've been able to pass that message on. I had no idea that was going to happen for me. I've met many good people in Alcoholics Anonymous. I love my life here. I've got family that I got reunited with and some I didn't. I've got two old, older kids that won't even talk to me. I made amends to them 23 years ago when I was about two minutes sober. And they said the best amend you can make is never darken our door. And they have went to great pains to set me out of their life. And my other three I've been reunited with. It's all good. You hear me? Even the stuff that looks bad, it turns out to be all good. I love AA, and if you're new in this room, I'll leave you with this thought. AA works. It works really, really good. I invite you to come aboard and join us.